Well, the Packers lost last night. I can't seem to get past the why. Some of you are going to hell for at least a week for that. Good morning. Uh, you know, often when we talk about our faith, we, we talk about the fact that there is the presence of doubt that's sort of inherent in faith. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. Faith is this issue that has both the question of uncertainty along with this sense of certainty. And it's a kind of a mixed bag. It's attention enough that the scripture calls us to consider a leap of faith. And I love Kierkegaard. We've talked about this. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard who talks about this idea of a leap of faith where, where you have this sense of, of uncertainty that's present, but you get to the point where you say, no, I'm leaping at this. I'm going after it. And there's a gift of God that's involved, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, but the reality is, is once you have embraced the notion and wrestled through your doubts, and you decided to believe, doubt needs to start losing its power in your life and has to start becoming invalid because you're stepping into a world that you've accepted and you buy into it and you have to decide to refuse to let doubt continue to influence and persuade you. There has to be that intentional leap toward God. Um, <laughs> I, I thought of the, uh, the C.S. Lewis classic, uh, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, and in that particular uh, series, uh, these four kids, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, are sent to this professor's house out in the country because World War II is going on. It's set in one, uh, 1940, and bombs are blowing up in, in London. And so they're sent out to, to, into the country to this Professor Kirk's uh, estate and uh, to live there for safety. And as the kids are, you know, doing as kids do, trying to find things to do, trying to be playful, they're playing hide-and-seek, and Lucy kind of happens into this little room that has a, uh, uh, this uh, l rather large... Um, uh, wardrobe, which is, you know, they didn't used to have the built-in closet, so it was a wardrobe that kept the clothes. Well, she's going inside there to hide. And as she hides in the old wardrobe, she finds as she's leaning back into it, there's some sort of a portal. And as she pushes through the portal, she finds herself in another world. It's a world called Narnia. And there's these talking animals and mythical creatures. It's just a completely different world. And uh, so she gets the other kids to come with her. But what I was thinking about, it, about that, I thought, you know, the only appropriateness about that wardrobe is if you're outside the wardrobe and Lucy's telling you about it, I mean, there's plenty of room to doubt. But once you get into the wardrobe and you start pushing through to go into Narnia, there's a point at which you've got to leave your doubts behind. And you just have to go after it, right? And go after Narnia and jump into the wonder of what Narnia is. And, and I think that those of us who have crossed the threshold of faith, we shouldn't just try to hang at the wardrobe. I mean, I think it's cool to say, you know, when I choose to have faith that there's some struggle that I have with my faith. I mean, that's true. But faith, doubt isn't always cool. Sometimes you have to just chuck it and say, man, I am in this thing. I am drinking the Kool-Aid. Right? And I'm in, uh, you know, and you might still have the occasional atheist flu, you know, where you have to two or three days step back out of the wardrobe, jump into bed and say, I don't know if I can believe this. But the reality is, get into this. We, we are Christians. And we have this wonderful world of outrageous claims and wild ideas and scandalous notions that we 
talk about when we talk about Jesus and about the church and about the beliefs that have been laid down for us. It's a place of wonder. And I love being a Christian. I love this whole idea of, of actually being able to, to believe in things I can't prove empirically and, and somehow magically know internally that something called faith, which is the gift that God gave me, is inside me. Don't, don't, it's a gift of God. Don't feel badly uh, if, if you're a person who, who doesn't have faith right now. Don't, don't think in your heart that just because it's not there that you'll never be able to really serve God. Because the reality is if you're remotely hungry, remotely open, and just hang around for a bit, you will find out that God is present and God will begin to fill your life with faith. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, now the text I want to read to you this morning is out of Matthew, or excuse me, it's out of Luke chapter 3, and it starts in verse 15. This is talking about Jesus. It's talking about this notion of, of John the Baptist who is, has come to people and is telling them to prepare for the Christ. And then, and then it starts talking about how Jesus ended up being baptized. But here's the story. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. This is an agrarian culture. This is a farming community. And they used to understand how the wheat would be brought in and be messed with and how they used to burn the chaff away and that sort of thing. So he's describing that, that, that somehow when the Messiah comes, he's going to mess with you is what he's saying. And then in verse 21, it says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, Jesus was praying, heaven was open. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. Very cool story. Now, before we dig into this particular story, I just wanted to sidebar with you for a minute and talk about how these early Christians accessed these stories. Because you have to remember, this was a, an oral culture. They would hear these stories. They didn't have the Bible in their hands. They didn't have the written texts in their hands. They couldn't see them on the board. I mean, it was basically, that was an oral, oral experience. And so when they, because of the orality of it, they, they, they would actually hear the stories and then ponder them. And they ended up being a little more poetical than we usually think in modern in the modern world, we, we tend to think historically, what actually happened? What are the details? We want to exegete the passage, right, kind of thing. Uh, but they would think a lot more poetically. And so when you read the early church fathers, they would talk about it in ways that were, I think are kind of cool. Uh, you probably don't, but that's okay. I'm talking. You have to listen to me. <laughs> so like when we read about the Magi that we read last week, when they came to see Christ, uh, this is the text, is Matthew 2. It says, On coming to the house, they, the Magi, saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. I mean, here were the stargazers, the one that used to worship the stars, now worshiping the one who made the stars. Right? And so then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, we read this and it's just, you know, it's just facts. You know, they came one way, they went home another way. But when these ancients heard these kinds of stories, they would ponder them and they would come up with things like this. No one who ever really meets Christ with a good will ever returns the way he came. 
<laughs> so they were always trying. It was like they were, they were looking for the deeper meaning, man. They were looking for what was below the literal meaning, something that, was, that, that would speak somehow to the heart or speak somehow to how what God was doing, speaking to the kingdom of God. Or they were looking for what was being said, how it would speak to these large ideas of, of, of doctrine or, or what do we believe about the church or what do we believe about Christ or what do we believe about the fact that he's coming back. How, does the, how do these stories inform us about those bigger pictures? And that's where we get systematic theology and moral theology and all these theologies come out of the fact that these early people didn't just take these texts at face value. They did want to know what they meant literally. They did want them to be exegeted in terms of what do the words mean and what were the historical context. Those, were, those things were important to them, but it wasn't the most important. They were longing for the spiritual sense of it. What was God saying through the story? And so in some ways they believed, particularly as they resourced the Old Testament, the Jewish Testament, they, they said those guys, God anointed them and inspired them to write. But oftentimes they wrote things they didn't even understand. And so here come the Christians and they're saying, God even has something to say beyond what the original author understood. So you get guys like Paul who claims about Abraham, the story that was so much a part of in the memory of the Jewish people. Abraham, the father of faith, and how, how the Jewish nation comes out of Abraham. And Paul resources that story, and he says in Galatians, for it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, Hagar, and the other by the free woman, who was Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born in an ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. So he's given the literal exegesis here. But then he says, these things may be taken figuratively. What's he saying? There's a deeper meaning here. God's saying something more than what you see, right? And he says, these women represent two covenants. And then he begins to, to dig into how that works. See, the idea here was that they, they understood that God was saying and speaking through Scripture on more than one level. This is what makes the church, reading the church fathers so fun. Because they're giving you the different senses of the, tense, the texts. And really makes the Christian story romantic. Poetic. Not as boring as most preachers are. <clears throat> Right? <laughs> We're celebrating Epiphany, and this is the celebration of the moment when the church recognized that when people would see the person of Jesus and realize it wasn't just him, but that he was God, they would have an aha moment. They would have this, this, this experience that would open their eyes, this Epiphany. And, and, and because heaven had come to earth, and when they thought about that, they, they would muse about that and wonder about that. And so they would come up with ideas like, like when Mary held a Jesus, the fact that, that, that heaven had come to earth, that they would make statements like, it was the first time when Mary looks at Jesus, it's the first time that human beings ever looked down toward heaven. <laughs> or, or they would point out uh, this notion of, of how that there was only two kinds of people that had epiphany. There were the magi, these were the really, really wise men, and there were the shepherds, and they were the people that had never been educated. And so they basically said there were those who knew nothing, they were the shepherds, and those who knew they didn't know everything. And that was the wise people. Wise people know they don't know everything. But then you have this third category. It's those who know everything. <laughs> now, how many of you know some people who know everything? How many of you be one of those people that know everything, right? Right? <laughs> 
See, now, for these early church thinkers, they thought the people that know everything don't get to see God. It's only the people that know they don't know everything and the people that don't know anything. It's the humble. It's the, the ones who are simple and wise or wise. These are the ones that actually have epiphany. Or, or when they thought about the story of, of Christ and how he came into the world, they would make much of small things, like the, the fact that there was no room in the inn, right, in Bethlehem for Jesus, and, and that Christ ended up in a stable. And so they would, they would point out the fact that an inn, you know, is kind of the place for public opinion and, and lots of moods and rendezvous of the worldly, and it was, it was a place for the successful and the popular state. The manger, on the other hand, was a place for outcasts and for the ignored And for the forgotten, no one would have expected God to show up there. And they love that. God shows up where you don't think he shows up. (laughs) Became part of their theology. They love that divinity showed up in unexpected places. And they thought it was completely appropriate that Jesus showed up there because Jesus came for the outcasts. And he came for the ignored. And he came for the forgotten. He comes into his own world through the back door as an exile. And they love poetically framing Jesus' life. They would say things like, he was disowned when he entered and rejected when he left. (laughs) Or they would say, all people born into the world were born to live. Jesus was the only one who was born into the world to die. He was kind of a loser on one level. Certainly counterintuitive for the savior of the world because people thought the savior of the world was going to save them politically or economically, or socially in some way. But Jesus didn't come to save humanity politically or economically, socially. Eventually that will happen when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. But he came to save us from our sin. He came to become like us, so we fit the loser motif. Right? These earthly followers of Jesus, the, the, the very early ones, they, they knew that Jesus could have come with billions of angels, with thunderbolts, lots of power, and, uh, but he chose instead to come in poverty and limitation. And, and all because he was being prepared to be a sacrifice for us. And they pondered these unexpected aspects of Jesus. He was odd Jesus to them, but they loved it. They saw Jesus as a divine disturber. They, they, they realized that people didn't remain the same when they saw him or they learned from him. There was no such thing as compromise when you met Jesus. You either accepted him or you rejected him. There was no middle ground. He was a no compromise savior. The closer you got to Jesus, the more conscious you were of your guilt. And so you would either respond either with a cry of mercy or with an absolute angry rejection of him. That's what was going on. The story fascinated them. They lived, these early Christians lived in the story. They'd come and they'd hear Matthew's story being told or John's story being told or these different writings being read and they would listen and then they would chatter. What do you think it means? It was their world. They didn't have video games. They didn't have television. They muse on all the possible implications of the Christ event. Few 21st century moderns are captured by that story. Some of you could give me more detail about the rules on vampires from Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series than you can about the details of the life of Jesus, the God-man. And what does this mean? But, but I think 
if, if we don't dance with doubt quite as much and we realize we're in this and we dare to listen to Jesus, which is what we're hoping to do this spring as we walk and march to Easter, we're going to talk a lot about the stories surrounding Jesus because our goal is that you'll fall in love with him again and that you'll be transformed by this being who is our Savior. Jesus is still cool. Okay, so let's jump into our text. This is John the Baptist. John is an odd bird. He, he shows up on the scene. He's wearing the craziest clothes. He has no clue on fashion. This guy has zero coolness. You know, you have coolness quotients. Zero coolness, John the Baptist. He's eating weird food. He was an extreme ascetic, which means he, which means he was basically a caveman. One of his values would have been, if you can beat it, you can eat it. <laughs> Not, not a big, uh, you know, fancy food guy. Just, you know, eating a locust, man. You can catch a locust. <laughs> so here's this dude, right? We go into this text. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. We mentioned this last week, but a really cool, cool idea. Somebody sent me a text. Sorry. Uh, a really... <laughs> later okay so (laughs) we're not quite done uh so so, what did what was i talking about last week thank you last week we were talking about the fact that 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 the whole world was pregnant with this hope of a ruler coming in you can read stuff from china the magi themselves from the east they were interpreting stars And they had this sense that a ruler was coming. They followed those stars. It was their own pagan kind of revelation. And uh, and the Jews, of course, had their prophecies about the Messiah. And the whole world is just intense. Something's going to happen. And so when they meet John, and he's oddball, he comes out and he's, he's speaking strongly. They think they're all wondering in their hearts, is he Messiah? Is this the Messiah? Right? And then John answered them all, no, no, I'm not. He said, I baptize you with water. But the one who is more powerful than I will come. He's saying, I'm not the Messiah, but the Messiah is coming. He says, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He's really saying, look, at this guy is so way cool and so way wonderful that I, I don't even have, I, 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 I wouldn't be able to really stand by him and touch him. He's the Messiah. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John, and then he goes on, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. And he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So what he's saying is he's taking, he'll take what's just natural, just like wheat, and separate it, which it needs to be separated, so they can actually be something of worth. And he'll burn away what's not good. And he's saying, listen, I baptize you with water. See, John came to call people to take a bath before they ran into Jesus. They're saying, look at the Messiah's coming. He's going to mess with you. He's coming with the Holy Spirit. He's coming with fire. Water doesn't transform. John is basically saying, I didn't come to tr- bring you transformation. I came to get you bathed to be ready for transformation, to be ready to be created into something different, for God to mess with you, where the Savior messes with you in a way that makes you a different person, a transformed person. He said, but what you have to do is you have to come to the water and be cleansed. You've got to acknowledge your sin, and you've got to be willing to renounce your sin, not because that will transform you, but because it will prepare you to listen to the Savior of the world. 
And so, you know, the, the reality is uh, when we talk about sin, it's a great question. Whatever happened to sin? Because in the 21st century, people don't like to talk about sin. It's kind of a pejorative word, sin. In other words, it makes you feel bad about yourself. So, a, so, we, so we don't really have sin anymore. We, we have issues. <laughs> and and, and I've, I've got some problems. And, you know, occasional addiction. But few of us talk about sin. Uh, the problem is, is sin points to the fact that we're Humpty Dumpty's. Humpty Dumpty sat in a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. See, Humpty was helplessly broken. If we're sinners, we're Humpty Dumpty's. And nothing can put us back together again. If we're sinners, we need a savior. We need the one who can actually change us, to repair us, to do something on a level that transforms us. We need a Savior. If you, if you understand that the Savior has come and can deal with sin, you're not as afraid of talking about sin. But if you don't, if you think that we're supposed to save ourselves, which was the impulse even in the garden. You remember when the, when the enemy, the, 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 the serpent comes to Eve and says to her, you know, Eve, you can be like God if you do this. If you do this, you'll be like God. You, you won't need him. You'll be like him. See, the, the enemy still tells us, you know, you could, if you just got a little more, if you just fucked up a little more, if you just really got just a little more commitment, if you just prayed just a little more, you can get yourself all fixed. You can't, Humpty. You can't. You will never graduate from needing Jesus. You'll always be a loser. <laughs> John was simply pointing people to a God who was going to come and mess with them, who would bring the Holy Spirit in fire and who would begin to cause their wheat to come out and their chaff to be burned. The baptism that the Savior would give would be one that would actually transform us. It was a kind of God mugging. That's what salvation is, God mugging you. Back to the text, uh, Luke 3. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, interestingly, the other texts, other gospel writers talk about this story. And, and, and in one of the other writers, it talks about how John panicked at this. When Jesus wanted to be baptized, John's a little freaked out about it because he's thinking, I can't even touch your shoes, much less baptize you. And we pick up the text in Matthew 3, but John tried to deter Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? This can't work, is what he's saying. But Jesus replied, let it be so now, because it is proper for you, for us, to do this to fulfill all righteousness, and then John consented. So what was happening here? Uh, early church fathers claimed that Jesus didn't get purified in John's baptism because he was sinless, but that he was doing a couple of things. Number one is he was simply aligning himself with humanity because he came to be born as a human, so he aligned himself with humanity. He came to live as a human, so he did the religious things humans did to align himself. And then he went to the cross to die as a human, so he aligned himself with us in our in his birth, in his life, in his death, Jesus is always trying to become part of us. And that's why he was baptized, to become part of us, to save us. Secondly, they believe by entering into baptism, he was really purifying the waters of baptism 
for all Christians who were to follow. And, and they would use the images like Paul gave this image of, of how in the Old Testament when they crossed from under Egyptian bondage and rule and passed through the Red Sea, that that, that that passing to the other side, being led by that column of fire that paved the way and lit the way, that that somehow was an image, because they're looking for the deeper meaning, of baptism. And the fact that we come out of bondage and that the pillar of fire was none other than Jesus. So we get from the fourth century, St. Maximus of Turin, he quotes, I'll quote him, quote, I understand the mystery as this, the mystery of baptism. The column of fire went before the sons of Israel through the Red Sea so that they could follow their brave journey. The column went first through the waters to prepare a path for those who followed. As the Apostle Paul said, what was accomplished then was the mystery of baptism. Clearly, it was baptism in a certain sense when the cloud was covering the people and bringing them through the water. But Christ, the Lord, does all these things. In the column uh, of fire, he went through the sea before the sons of Israel. So now, in the column of his body, he goes through baptism before all Christian people. At the time of the Exodus, the column provided light for the people who followed. Now, it gives light to the hearts of believers. Then, it made a firm pathway through the waters. Now, it strengthens the footsteps of faith in the bath of baptism. So I love this stuff. You may not like it, but tough Tucci. I love it. <laughs> Back to the text. Chapter 3. And he, as he was praying, as Jesus was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here are the last two points. Let's start with the last one. The, 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 you are my son whom I love. For these early thinkers, this was the first kind of idea that was put forward that suggested that Jesus was not just a prophet, that he wasn't just a special saint, but this is hinting at his pre-existence. And so we see Jesus praying to his father in John 17, and he makes this statement. He said, I want to share the glory that we had before the foundation of the world. And then we read John where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and that everything that was created was created by the word. It, Jesus was the only person in human history that ever had a prehistory. He was in the father as the word, kind of like if we were going to have a conversation before you can say a word, the word you're going to say is already in your mind before you can say it. It's in your mind before you can say it. You say it only after it's in your mind. Jesus was the word in the father's mind. And when he's spoken, he comes and is made flesh in the world. So when the father, when this story goes, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, it started tying into this notion, Jesus, this odd Jesus, wasn't just a normal person. He was actually God in flesh. It took him centuries to work out what that really looked like and why that was true. But it starts here. Second thing in this text, the last thing in this text, is when he brings up the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you what, people's ears perked up when you talked about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they knew the story of creation. They knew in Genesis chapter 1 that the scripture says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Does that not sound like a lot of people you know? <laughs> or sometimes our own lives. We look at our lives and we say, man, what's going on in your life? Man, formless, empty, dark. That's me. 
It's this job I've got. <laughs> All right, whatever. But it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering. The Spirit of God was there over the formless place. He's there over the dark place, and he's hovering. And then it says, and God said, the word came, let there be light. The, 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 the Latin phrase is fiat lux, fiat lux, let there be light. And there was. So these early Christians knew that when you talk about the Holy Spirit, you're talking about creation. You're talking about God moving in the world to make things that weren't here. And they knew in their minds the story of bondage and sin and how the creation has been corrupted. And they knew also the story of Jesus' birth and how when they come to Mary, the angel comes to Mary and tells her, you're going to have a baby. And Mary's response is, how? I'm a virgin. I've never had a relationship sexually with a man. How will this be? And remember what the angel said? The Holy Spirit shall hover over you and overshadow you. And what shall be found in you will be the word made flesh. And flesh word is the word incarnation. That God came into Mary's womb in that moment. And it was a creative act. They knew that what this meant was Jesus coming by the Holy Spirit, that it's really a recreation. Why? Because we needed one. It is completed when there's a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus returns, but it starts in that moment. And these, these precious Christians, they, they understood that somehow Jesus becomes the second Adam and that somehow the virgin's womb, this virgin's womb becomes the link between heaven and earth. Early churches all over this because they thought a woman got us into this mess and a woman paved the way to get us out. When Mary says, be it done, you know what the Latin phrase is? Fiat. In Genesis 1, it was fiat lux, let there be light. Here in Mary's world with the angel present, she goes, fiat, myself. She basically is the fiat of Mary, which means she's saying, let there be what you've said. Let there be. And what they believed was that fiat was a lot more dramatic and more powerful and more earth-shaking, historically altering than when God first said, let there be light. Because that fiat resulted in God becoming flesh. And then here's John saying to them, he that is coming, who I'm not worthy to even untie his shoes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And fire. You know what he's saying? He's saying the same Holy Spirit that brought creation, the same Holy Spirit that brought God in the world is the same Holy Spirit that shall overcome, over, overtake your life. And somehow as a result of his presence, new things will come that were not there. You'll become part of the recreation of God, the repurposing of creation from God, the redemption of God. And you, as Paul says, will become, if any person is in Christ, they become a new creation. A new creation. And they understood it. See, Jesus could have come 10,000 times to Bethlehem. But if he never found a way to be born again in us, it would all be worthless. What made the story powerful is that this very Savior baptizes us in the fire and the power of the Holy Spirit so our lives can be different. This is why we fall in love with Jesus. This is why we need to open our hearts to him. He is amazing. I'm glad you're part of the story. <laughs>